We are back in First Thessalonians. So I would invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to that section. If you don't have a Bible, there is likely a blue Bible located underneath the seat around you. That's there for you to use. You can turn in that Bible to page 986. That'll bring you to our our section. I have a a couple of announcements myself. If you weren't here last Sunday, I would encourage you to go online and listen to the message. It was not from me. It was from our brother Thomas. It was an excellent message. It was called Eliminating Earthly Ways. As he's making his way through Colossians, it was on chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. So I just want to encourage you, if you missed it, catch it there, listen to it. Just uh, another great message from the Word of God. Also, the studies for growth groups and women's group, uh, uh, Thomas, uh, Tim mentioned this, but when you go back there, just want to let you know if you would not only sign up if you plan on joining a group, so you'll see a different sign-up sheet for each group, but then let us know if you'd like us to order a book. For you, or if you do not want us to order a book because you plan on getting it on your own, because each study requires a book, and for the women and for the growth groups. So please let us know that so that we can make one large mass order soon here so that we'll have the books in time. So if you can do that before you leave today, that would be great. You can also prepay for the book today, but if you're not able to do that today, that's okay. Just at least let us know that you want a book or books so that we can get them in the order. And I think that's it. So you ready? We return now to the detailed account of the gospel ministry of the Apostle Paul and his missionary team that is found in the text that I just asked you to turn to, verses 1 through 12 of chapter 2. And as we examine this section, we are getting a picture of what exemplary gospel ministry looks like, and we are drawing some lessons from it for us. And I've been doing this now for several weeks and and reviewing and going back over this and going slowly, as you know. So let me read to you first the first four verses, because that's all we've covered so far, and do a little bit of review again, but a little bit differently, uh, adding just a little bit uh, different words to kind of just remind you again of what we've already covered. And then we'll pick up right where we left off and see how far we get today. The plan is we'll come back one more time to this text. There will be a part five, so that is the plan. This Saturday will be a Christmas message, so looking forward to that. And then the following week, we're going to meet on Saturday again. So for the next two two weekends, we meet on Saturday because the facility is closed on Sunday. But at the end of the year, I'll finish up this section of 1 Thessalonians. All right. Let me read chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. You can follow along in, on the screen or in your Bibles. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. So the Apostle Paul is writing to the Christians in Thessalonica, those whom he had ministered to and preached the gospel to. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we have boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. So here's what we've covered so far. 
or gone over or the lessons that we've drawn out. Lesson one, we got it from verse two, where we see that the gospel of God was declared in Thessalonica in the midst of much conflict, or as one translation puts it, in spite of much opposition. So this is the lesson. Exemplary gospel ministry requires a willingness on our part to face and endure opposition or hostility or conflict. Therefore, in order for the gospel to advance as it should, as God desires it to, we will need to avoid the trap of finding our contentment or satisfaction in being liked or affirmed by others or in even even being comfortable and find it instead in pleasing our Lord and Savior regardless of the temporary trouble that may bring us. We need to be good soldiers, if you will, for the Lord Jesus Christ. So that was lesson one. Lesson two, again, out of verse two, we had boldness in our God, Paul says, concerning himself and his co-workers who preached the gospel and made it known in Thessalonica. The boldness or confidence we need for faithful gospel ministry is found by trusting and resting solely in the power and greatness of our God. We are, without a doubt, very weak and feeble. But our God is supremely strong, and he will never leave us nor forsake us and will sustain us as we step out in faith and do what he has called us to do as his people, and that is to make Jesus known. Lesson three, found in verse three. Paul says that his appeal, or their appeal, or the gospel message, that when they gave that message, there was, there was no attempt to deceive. They didn't use any attempt. There was no attempt on their part to deceive in delivering that message. Unlike the tactics by tricksters, exemplary gospel ministry does not resort to manipulative methods or humanly devised schemes or empty promises in order to gain true followers or converts. Rather, in exemplary gospel ministry, Followers of Christ, with all sincerity, are to share the message of Jesus Christ with others and rely solely upon God in his power to supernaturally open the ears and hearts of the hearers so that they might respond as they ought. That is with repentance and faith and become fellow followers of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lesson four, also in verse three, Paul says, the appeal was not from impurity, or as one translation puts it, not from impure motives. 
Exemplary gospel ministry is not driven by impure or selfish or self-serving motives, but rather by righteous and pure ones. And it is driven first and foremost, beloved, by a love for God and a desire above all else to honor the Lord with one's life. And beloved, the Lord is honored when we make much of Him to others, when we live for His glory and not ours. Lesson 5. Also in verse 3, Paul says that their appeal, their gospel message did not spring from error, did not come from error. A personal conviction that the gospel is indeed the true message of Almighty God that it does not come from error or delusion, is a necessary part of exemplary gospel ministry. Without such conviction, one would not be willing to accept the risk or endure the troubles that come from a life committed to advancing the biblical message of Jesus Christ. Lesson six. And this is in verse four, and this is where we left off last time. We didn't finish it. But it was the phrase entrusted with the gospel that you see there in verse four. Exemplary gospel ministry requires us to see the gospel of God as a stewardship as something belonging to God, but that he has entrusted to us. As one uh, scholar put it, the concept of stewardship is implicit or implied in that phrase, entrusted with the gospel. God had entrusted the gospel to Paul and his co-workers and by extension to us who have received that very gospel and believed in it as a householder, entrust his property to his steward. And a steward, beloved, is not to do what he or she wants with what has been entrusted to them. But rather, they are to do what the owner of the property wants them to do with their property. So... We are not to keep the gospel to ourselves or sit on it or do little to make it known. That is not what God would have us to do with what is his, the very gospel that we now have in our possession and have believed and trusted in. Last Sunday after the service, someone shared an article with me concerning this last point. It was titled, Survey... Christians are not spreading the gospel. It goes on to say this. The holidays are a time when many people are more attuned to religion and Christians are more prone to sharing the gospel with non-believers. Or are they? That note of doubt arises from new research released by the American Culture and Faith Institute, otherwise known as ACFI. So they do 
they take, I can't think of the word, um, surveys or whatever, right. They take general surveys of populations and, and concerning culture and religion. And, and so it's across the board. It's not just Christian, but any, anybody of a claiming to have a religious belief or practice. So they took this survey, and it says that this survey shows that surprisingly few adults, so that would include anybody claiming some type of religion, and surprisingly few adults, including born-again Christians, so they're also captured in the survey, feel a personal responsibility to share their religious beliefs with non-believers. That's what their survey communicated. Goes on to say the ACFI research found that just one out of every five adults who are claiming some religious connection, one out of every five strongly, that's 21%, or that's their percentage, strongly affirms a personal responsibility to share their religious beliefs with people who hold different beliefs than they do. While born again Christians, here's some good news, are nearly twice as likely as non-born-again adults, or those who are lost, practicing following some other religion, they're twice as likely to have such a sense of responsibility. That still amounts to only two out of every five Christ followers, or 39% in their statistics, believing they should share the importance of reliance upon Christ with others. Now, beloved, I, you know, surveys, I don't know. I take them with a grain of salt. I, how accurate they are, I don't know, but I tend to give this some weight just because of what I've experienced and seen with the lack of a desire or, or even practice of Christians sharing their faith with others, like that kind of falling away. And I'm not sure why this might be. I mean, there, there's probably multiple, there's certainly multiple reasons. I couldn't nail it down for sure. I, maybe. Maybe we have bought into the, the thing that's been around for a long time. Keep your religion to yourself. You know, that's kind of the idea that's pushed out there. Keep your religion to yourself. It's a private matter. Keep it private. Or the one that you may be more familiar with, don't ever talk about religion or politics. It's impolite or even rude to do so, you're told. Now, I, I don't want to discuss politics right now. But God has not called us. God has not called us to keep our religion to ourselves. I just want you to think about that for a moment. So even that idea, that statement, keep, you know, don't talk about religion, don't talk about politics. Keep your religion to yourself. It's a private thing. It's a private matter. That does not fly with what the Bible says. It is not it is not what God desires for his people. We are not to keep the gospel to ourselves. We are not to keep the gospel of God that he has entrusted to us a secret or something we only talk about with other Christians. You know, in that safe space where you get positive feedback and affirmation. It's good and important to talk about the gospel in all of its glory and beauty with other Christians. Needful, I would say, for sure. But it must not stop there. God desires it to go beyond that, for sure. To the lost. To those who may even be hostile. Opposed. 
to those who say to you, keep your religion to yourself, to those very people, share it with them anyway. Maybe it's that, beloved. Maybe it's the culture. Maybe it's too great a reliance on big evangelistic events. I'm just trying to think it through and just kind of talking openly with you. Over the years, crusades or there would be big events that happen once or twice a year by large churches, especially in California, and, and that's where you then, I guess, get up the nerve to invite your lost friends and family to come and, and, and hear and to this big event, and there the gospel is shared and, and people are saved. And that's true. That does happen. That absolutely does happen. But God has not called us to wait for the professionals to put on a show, to put on an event, and gather everyone together so that the gospel could be heard. That is one way to do it, but that is certainly not the way to do it the rest of the year. What about the other 364 days of the year? God has called us to make the gospel known to those that are right near us, in our families, in our communities, in our places of work. And if you look at all the statistics, generally, more often than not, that is how people come to Christ. It is with someone they know sharing the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ with them. Just that one-to-one relationship. So if we stop doing that, we're in trouble. We're in trouble. So we have a stewardship, beloved. That means we have to care for the gospel as God would have us to care for the gospel. And so certainly that includes not twisting it or perverting it or or preaching another gospel that is not his, but it also means making it known to the lost. Whenever we can, wherever we can. Praying for opportunities to do that. That's our responsibility as stewards of the gospel. Then in 1 Thessalonians 2.4, Paul says, But just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, he says, so we speak. Having been entrusted with the gospel, Paul says, so we speak. The verb is in the present tense. It indicates that that was their normal practice, to share the good news with others. Beloved, they had to speak. They had to tell others the truth. As stewards of God's gospel, they knew they had an obligation to share it with others because that is what God desires for his gospel. Proclaim it to the world and teach it to others that they too might proclaim it to the world. Paul adds, so we speak not to please man, but to please God, who tests or examines our hearts. The emphasis, beloved, here is on God as the person to whom Paul and his co-workers were responsible, and so we are, too, as those who have received the gospel of Jesus Christ and believed in it. We are responsible to God. As one writer says, when confronted with the choice of pleasing men or pleasing God, 
Their purpose was always to gain God's approval. That's the overriding principle. That should be the overriding principle for us as well as followers of Christ. Meaning that if the choice is here, I can please my coworkers by being quiet because they don't want to hear about the gospel. They don't want to hear my talk about Jesus. They don't want to hear me mention that Bible again. Or I can please God and continue to make him known, even though it makes some people very uncomfortable and upset with me, then the choice is clear. I make him known. That's the idea. Because I have a responsibility to him. He has entrusted me with this gospel. My goal in life should not be about pleasing people. That should not be the goal. The goal should be pleasing God. Now, one uh, pastor was just commenting on that. He says, he adds that Paul didn't please men. It doesn't mean that he was insensitive toward people. You know? It's not like you walk around going, I don't care about anybody. I'm not gonna... That's not the idea. It's a choice. If it's between the two, pleasing God or pleasing men, if that's the choice, then the choice needs to be, must be, pleasing God. But that doesn't mean that we're insensitive toward people. He goes on to say that Paul was careful not to needlessly offend others. He spoke graciously to people. We should speak graciously to people. We should not needlessly offend them. But behind Paul's actions toward people was a primary focus to please and glorify God. And that should be true of us as well. Sometimes it is needed to offend someone if it's for the sake of the gospel in order to please God. Do it tenderly, graciously, generously, but to tell them the truth about Jesus Christ, even if they find that offensive, so that God might use that truth to convict them and cause them to surrender their lives to the Lord and be saved. So those were six lessons. Here's lesson seven. Now, we moved fairly slow and drew six lessons. We could have drawn more, but we drew six lessons out of the first four verses. I'm going to draw one lesson out of five, six, seven, eight, nine, the next five verses, five through nine, just one. Lesson seven, exemplary gospel ministry is self-sacrificially committed to caring for and seeking the highest good of others. Or to say it another way, Exemplary gospel ministry is done in love. It is characterized by love for others or biblical love. So let's read verses 5 through 9 and we'll get started. We won't finish this today, but we'll come back and finish it and then there'll be one more lesson with the remaining verses 10 through 12. So beginning in verse 5. For we, that is Paul and his co-workers, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, 
we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. So that was verses 5 through 9 of 1 Thessalonians 2. Verse 5, if you can see it there in your Bible, begins with the word for, at least in the ESV translation. It is there in the original language. For here tells you something, you need to consider something that went before it. It's explaining something or adding something further to what was just said. So for here indicates that what was just asserted of the gospel ministry generally in verses 3 and 4 that we've covered was true also of their gospel work at Thessalonica. So basically what Paul is saying, look, we in verses 3 and 4, we had no impure motive. We have no impure motives. Our gospel ministry in bringing, for, bringing it forth, we have no impure motives, nor do we use deceptive methods. Our aim is to please and glorify God, to bring praise to him. We are not in this for what we can get out of it. There is nothing selfish or self-serving or sinful about what we are doing. For, and then he goes on to explain what actually occurred in Thessalonica, further demonstrating that reality. For, we never came with words of flattery. So now he's talking about the actual occurrence of the gospel ministry there in Thessalonica. So that's the first thing he says. He's going to begin by pointing out what is not love, what is not biblical love, but what is self-serving. And that was not what we were about, Paul says. And then he'll move to showing them that what they were about and what gospel, exemplary gospel ministry is about is a self-sacrificing, caring commitment to others, seeking their highest good. So we never came with words of flattery or flattering speech. Flattery. When we think of flattery, we probably just think of praise or excessive or maybe insincere praise, but it's more than that, actually. The definition of flattery is excessive and insincere praise, especially that given to further one's interest, to further one's interest. In other words, there's a a motive behind this excessive and insincere praise. One scholar points out that the word translated here, flattery, in your Bibles, occurs nowhere else in the New Testament, and it expresses, that original word expresses, as he puts it, the torturous methods by which one man seeks to gain influence over another, generally for selfish ends. Manipulation, really. Manipulation. Insincere praise Excessive praise in order to manipulate one for one's self-interest and benefit. And Paul says, we never came to you with words of flattery. We did not come with a pretext for greed, he goes on. So again, he, if you remember, I told you that Paul is on the defense here. There's been attacks, verbal attacks made against him by those who oppose the gospel to undermine their confidence in those who brought them the gospel that they may not believe the gospel or stay strong in it. And so it appears that that's what he's addressing here. You know, he was just flattering you for selfish gain. No. Uh, He came with you with a pretext for greed. No. 
as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Now, what's that mean? Well, pretext, a definition of pretext is a reason given for doing something that is not the real reason. A reason given for doing something that is not the real reason. So their work, this gospel ministry, was not motivated then by disguised greed. It wasn't their way of gaining something or getting something by bringing them this gospel. And that could have been an accusation that was made against them and people might have believed because many Greek orators or philosophers that would travel around and bring their wisdom and their message would often use their skills to defraud their followers, to obtain uh, money or things for bringing them that message. And Paul says, listen, you know, we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. And then in verse 6, nor did we seek glory from people. And I like how the NIV puts it, not from you or anyone else, not from anybody. And again, Paul is denying another form of really self-seeking, self-love. He denies any practice or habit of seeking the glory of men. It's a rejection, really, of, of personal ambition. That's not what this is about. That's what Paul is saying. That's not what exemplary gospel ministry is about. So those are all the denials. That's all the negative. That is, if it was any of that, then it's not of love, not biblical love, because it would be self-serving, self-seeking, self-exalting. That's not biblical love. And then Paul will turn here in verse 7 to speak about the love that, that characterized the ministry that they had among them and characterized his ministry as he moved forward. That is the gospel ministry. Before we get there, though, just a quick technical thing that we have to deal with real quick. There is some question among scholars about the end of verse 6. So it'll pop up on the screen here. Nor did we seek glory from people, 1 Thessalonians 2.6, whether from you or from others, comma, this is how it is in the ESV, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. You can just leave it up just for a moment brother. That, that phrase at the end, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, there's question about should that be connected with the end of verse 6? So you notice there's a, a comma and then the word through. Or is it supposed to be connected with what Paul says going forward? And so some translations will put a period at the end of others and begin a new sentence. So there's that question. And then there's also just the question of what it means. Though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, it's not entirely clear. It's an ambiguous statement. It literally means to be in wait, to be in wait. And because it is an ambiguous statement, translations translate it differently. So the ESV says we could have made demands, as we just read. The New American Standard says we might have asserted our authority. The NIV says we could have been a burden to you. The NIRV says we could have caused you some expense. The NET says we could have imposed our weight, which is probably closest uh, to the original literal uh, reading. 
I mean, consider all that. I like the way one translation puts it. it. It puts it this way. We might have burdened you with our support. We might have burdened you with our support. So I'm of the position that it actually doesn't, it isn't connected with verse 6, but it's connected with what follows. And in that section, that entire section, 7 through 9, uh, it fits better within that entire context. I'll show you that in a second. And that it likely means we, may have, we might have burdened you with our support. So let me show you that. I'll show you two other translations just quickly. Here's uh, the Holman or the Christian Standard Bible translation. They actually take the statement, they remove it from verse 6, and they actually make it verse 7 because the verses, or the actual verse numbers were something that were added later, and so they're not divine. They can be moved around, but for the sake of, you know, everyone being able to refer to the same verse, generally they're left the way they are. But in this case, they, they moved it to verse 7 uh, to show you that it's a, it's a thought that's connected with what follows instead of what's connected to verse 6. So do we have that, First Thessalonians 2, 7 through 9? This is the Holman Christian Standard Bible, and you'll see 7 now, not verse 6. Although we could have been a burden as Christ's apostles, so new sentence, comma, instead we were gentle among you as a nursing mother nurtures her own children. We cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For you remember our labor and hardship, brothers, working night and day so that we would not burden any of you, we preach God's gospel to you. So I think it fits in that section um, better. The NIV also starts a new sentence. It does not connect it to verse 6. It leaves it in verse 6, but it starts a a period, there's a period at the end there and starts a capital here. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We work night and day in order to not be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. So that's how I uh, would put it all together. So looking now, uh, and by the way, material support in return for spiritual or philosophical instruction, it was common both in the church and in the world at that time. And it, wasn't, it was something that was not considered improper. So I think what Paul is saying is we could have been a burden to you with our support, but we were not. Instead... We made sacrifices, and then he goes on. We, because of our love for you, we were gentle, and he goes on to explain that. And he even points out at the end of verse 9, remember, we worked night and day so that we didn't have to be a burden to you financially. We supported ourselves. But all of that, all of that, all this section to me demonstrates the characteristic of love that is to be part of exemplary gospel ministry. So let's look at that now, okay? So verses 7 through 9. First Thess 2, 7, but we were gentle among you. And then Paul illustrates that. In what sense? How were you gentle among us? Like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Do I have to explain that? I do have to explain that? Spoken by a man, of course. All right. <laughs> Do I have to explain that, moms? 
I mean, you get it right away, right? That's why he, he gave the illustration. It, it would come to you right away, the, the kind of care. But even so, let's take a look at it, you know, just to make sure we don't miss it. One uh, scholar says, all was tenderness and devotion. That's the kind of idea. That's what it should picture in your mind. All was tenderness and devotion, fostering and protecting care in their relationships to these Thessalonian Christians. That's, that's what took place in their gospel ministry. That's what exemplary gospel ministry looks like. We weren't looking to get from you. We were looking to give to you, to care for you, to love you. We were gentle with you, like a a nursing mother taking care of her own children. The word taking care of it, that's translated, the Greek word there, it, it means to warm, to warm Literally, it is used of birds covering their young with their feathers to warm and protect them. As one person puts it, it thus portrays the mother's protecting care and tender love for her children. That's exemplary gospel ministry. Another goes on to say and write this, Bible scholar, this lovely picture is a demonstration of the unselfish conduct of the missionaries in dealing with their converts. The nursing mother cares for and protects her offspring without seeking profit or honor for herself, but is intent upon bestowing benefits. So the missionaries cared for their beloved converts with no thoughts of selfish gain. That's biblical love, beloved. That's the picture. That's what Paul's using, that metaphor, to talk about their conduct in gospel ministry. We were there to care for you. We were there to nurture you. We were there to protect you. Then in 1 Thessalonians, it goes on. He continues with with these words that describe that love that they manifested towards them, that self-sacrificing commitment for their greatest good. He says in 1 Thess 2.8, so, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God. We loved you. So we, were, we shared with you the gospel of God. We were, in fact, remember, it was, it was our obligation, really. We were tasked with that. We were entrusted with that gospel to make it known, but we not only did that, being so affectionately desirous of you, we not only did that, but also we shared with you our own selves. Uh, Other translations put it, our own lives, our own lives, because you became very dear to us. As I just read a minute ago from the other two translations that I was showing you, about where that phrase goes and connecting it with what follows, the Holman says, we cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives because you had become dear to us. Or as the NIV puts it, we loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Our lives as well. Paul adds that he was, uh, one writer says, that he was not only as gentle as a mother with them, but as affectionate and sacrificial too. Far from using them to minister to himself, 
He gave himself to minister to them. That is exemplary gospel ministry. It is a giving, it is a sharing, not only of the gospel, but even one's own life. Making sacrifices for the sake of others. One writer says they gave not only their message, but themselves. Not only the message, but themselves. Why? Because of biblical love. I've said it to you many times before, but just a decent definition. I've already kind of told it to you. is a self-sacrificing, caring commitment that shows itself in seeking the highest good of the one love. That's exemplary gospel ministry. That, that should be true of us as well as a local church who are in gospel ministry. It should be true of you individually who have the gospel and have been entrusted with it, that you are not only just sharing the gospel. Okay, task done. I got it off my list. I shared the gospel. I made it known. But as those who receive it and, and believe it, you don't say, okay, I'm done, but you now give yourself to them for their good. That's gospel ministry. It's a partnership, a partnering with other people and pouring yourself into their lives. I like what uh, this commentator said. He said, the missionary's willingness to go beyond the God-given task of sharing the gospel demonstrated the strength and genuineness of the love they had for the Thessalonians. As Paul says, we were delighted to share our lives as well. As well. Sharing their lives indicates close personal involvement with the believers. Paul's work was not carried out with detached professionalism. A gospel messenger who stands detached from his audience has not yet been touched by the very gospel he proclaims. The gospel creates a community characterized by love. And so reminding the Thessalonians of this schooled the readers in the true character expected of them if they would work in the name of Christ. And beloved, it would be the true character expected of us as well as those who work in the name of Christ. I'm going to end there. We'll cover the remaining verses and get to verse 9 and 10 through 12 the next time. But just remember with me uh, for a moment the church of Corinth. The church of Corinth was a wealthy church, a very gifted church, but they lacked something, something really important in their gospel ministry. Do you recall what that was? Love. They lack love, and so Paul addresses that. It's, it's where we get the whole section that we are often use at weddings, 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. But it, was, it wasn't written to a, a husband and wife. It can be applied that way, certainly, to a new couple getting married. It wasn't written specifically to a husband and wife. It was written to a church. Basically, Paul told them, if you have not love then I don't care what you do, you have nothing. And of course, by love there, he meant biblical love. So he was, he was describing to them what real love looks like and calling them, exhorting them uh, to love and rebuking them for their lack of love. 
And so it's not by mistake. I don't, I, we, I have us all now together as a church, those who are willing, going through a book called Love or Die. I love titles like that. Love or Die, right? And it's, and it's a, a look, a closer look at Revelation 2, where Jesus rebukes a church that is good in many ways, but he says, you have abandoned the love you had at first. You have abandoned the love you had at first. I mean, the secret sauce that makes the church unique, that makes gospel ministry stand out among all other ministries, it is love. It is a self-sacrificing, caring commitment that shows itself in seeking the highest good of others. It does not look out for numero uno first and most, but looks out for their brothers and sisters in Christ and those who are yet to come to Christ and seeks their good even at great cost to them. So it's always good, I think. We've been around eight years, almost. Is that right? Yeah, almost eight. Well, whatever, seven and a half. Okay, all right. Yeah, 2010. Yeah, what year are we? Yeah, okay, so yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right. Seven, seven and some change, you're right, all right. I'm always looking forward. So we've been around seven and some change, but I, it's always good to keep coming back to this topic because a church can lose its way. A church can lose its way. Christians can lose their way. And if you do gospel ministry but do it without love, then that is not, it's not worthy of God. And it's not exemplary gospel ministry. And it's not what Paul and his team were doing and had done in Thessalonica as they described in this section of God's Word. So just a good reminder, and as, you, we look through this, as we look through the study together, hopefully you'll join it. But he talks about the need to cultivate love. We have to study love, pray for love, teach love, model love, guard love, and practice love. That's got to be the center of what we do in gospel ministry as, uh, as we look to not only make Jesus known and make much of him, but continue to instruct and teach others in it that they too might make him known. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that you have made us partners in gospel ministry by redeeming us and saving us, Father. I just pray as we continue to look at this beautiful picture of of what gospel ministry should look like, should be like, that we would glean from it lessons that we will not just hear and then put away, but hear and consider and meditate on and then conform our lives to, that we would, we would be a church, we would be a body, we would be a people, a local fellowship that would seek to, to honor you to the max, to glorify you as best that we can, Father. And wherever we're off in that, we want to we wanna correct, we want to turn away from anything that would not Bring you honor and glory because you're so worthy of it. Father, as we speak about the gospel, as we think about the gospel, as we meditate on the gospel and, and the ministry that we have around that and centered on that, Father, I, I just want to also remember those that are here even now today who have maybe heard the gospel many times or maybe it's been the first time that they've heard talk of this today but have not yet embraced the person of the gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that that they would do that very thing, 
that they would recognize their need for a Savior, that they would confess the fact that they are guilty before you, God, that they are deserving of your wrath, that they have not lived for you, that they have violated your holy law in more than one way, and, and not just one time, but many times, that they have not surrendered their life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And because of that, because of that, Father, they are destined for separation, eternal separation from you and your judgment, which is right and holy. But you sent your Son. You sent your Son that they might be redeemed if they would only believe, repent, and turn to you and put their hope and faith and trust in the one and the only one who can redeem them and save them, and that is your beloved Son, our Savior, the one we will celebrate in a short period of time coming into the world. And as Tim said, he came into the world to save sinners. I pray that they would not only understand that, those who have not yet understand that, but that they would believe it and put their trust in it and call out to you for your salvation and be saved. We ask that, Father, for your glory, for your glory, for you are glorified and honored when sinners bow their knee and confess to you their need and acknowledge Jesus as their Lord. I pray that that would happen today as well, Father. And we ask all this in our Savior's name. Amen.